Hello, listeners. Matt here. Hey, are you Pottern Family? Go on Twitter and search the hashtag Pottern Family or follow at Pottern Family to find a bevy of great podcasts, including this one. That's hashtag Pottern Family or at Pottern Family on Twitter. By the way, spoiler alert, this podcast will be talking about the most recent episode of the show that it covers. So if you're not caught up, come back when you are if you don't want to be spoiled. Don't worry, we'll be here waiting. Dedicated to the DC Arrowverse on the CW Network. It's Save This City, a Flash and Arrow podcast. And now here's your host, Matt Murdick. Hey there, and welcome to Save This City Podcast, coming to you on a late Tuesday afternoon. It's episode 19 of the podcast, and this time around we are covering Legends of Tomorrow, season 1, episode 6, entitled Star City 2046, written by Mark Guggenheim and Ray Utarnichid, and directed by Steve Schill, and Supergirl, season 1, episode 15, Solitude written by Anna Muskie-Goldwyn and James DeVille, and directed by Dermot Downs. My name is Matt Murdock, and I am from SaveThisCityPodcast.wordpress.com. That's your one-stop shop for all the things this podcast, like the back episodes of the podcast and all of the social media and contact links and podcatcher links. If you would, please take the time to leave me a written review on iTunes or on Stitcher or whatever podcatcher app you use. Um, not only does it help me to stay more noticeable among the other podcasts covering these series, but it also helps me tweak the show if you lend your criticisms or um, your praises so that I know what to keep or what not to keep. Plus, I'll thank you right here in this spot on the podcast if you do. Um, You might want to reach out to me and let me know that you left a review. Sometimes it's hard for me to find um, new reviews. Uh, if you've left them in international stores or such. But uh, nonetheless, I will thank you. Uh, how do you reach out to me to let me know that you did that? Well, you can send an email to SaveTheCityPodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at SaveTheCityPod or you can leave a voicemail by calling 314-669-1840. And I'm happy to share with uh, all of our listeners any thoughts that you have regarding Um, the episodes or the podcast uh, if you use that contact information. That's enough about the podcast. Let's get right into talking about the Legends of Tomorrow episode, Season 1, Episode 6, Star City 2046. I guess the first thing I should say is, can I say how happy I was that we didn't see Vandal Savage nor Kronos really in this episode? I mean, save the the previously on, of course, but a real foe that had nothing to do with either of them, or at least they didn't make it about either of them. Um, we got to see a, a, a great hero slash foe story, and it was probably about as monster of the week as I think we're likely to get with this series, and that was really, really refreshing to me. I needed a break from Vandal Savage. I needed a break from the Time Masters. And 
last week, of course, I had said, of course, Oliver's not going to be jumping around like that 30 years later. Well, that particular version of Green Arrow, uh, of course, uh, was not Oliver. But look what we got. I'm really happy that I was wrong about Oliver not being in shape because having Stephen Amell as an older version of Oliver, that was just like nothing short of flat awesome. He, he he seemed more experienced. He seemed very war-weary. It was really the perfect portrayal of an Oliver who had pretty much lost everything. And, okay, the robotic arm thing uh, seemed awfully convenient to having to be the one thing in the entire layer there that wasn't completely destroyed. But I, I don't mind because that way we got to see an older Oliver fight with a next-generation Deathstroke. And the comeback story and the way Sarah was able to help him come back, that was so great. And it wasn't like, you know, a hero speech that just got him to come back, although she did give one of those. Um, I really think that what you got from it was the fact that she was willing to go on and do it by herself, but she asked for his help um, in order to save Diggle Jr., and she really needed that help. And that's what brought Oliver back. Um, Stephen Amell was just fabulous in this episode. And, and and seeing all of the next generations was just way too cool for me. I loved that. And speaking of the next generations, I mean, I love that they have Diggle Jr. use the name Connor Hawk, who is, of course, a green arrow in the comics. And how the whole uh, Deathstroke thing came back in the form of, of Grant Wilson. And I guess that's from the New Earth or the Earth Prime DC stuff. Though, um, from what I read, and again, you guys know I'm not very up on the comics, so I have to often go to wikis and things and, and look things up. But didn't Grant Wilson actually go by Ravager or something like that um, later on? Maybe he did act as Deathstroke kind of early on. I don't, I don't remember. At any rate. Since I don't know much about the comics, as I've said before, it, it all worked for me. I didn't have any problem with it. Um, we kind of need the origin of, of Grant Wilson to be a little better explained on the TV shows at some point, maybe, because that's really my only complaint about that. There was never any, any indication that, that Slade had a child, and I, I don't know how old Grant Wilson is supposed to be, in the year 2046, but uh, Grant would have have to have been born, you would think, when Slade was uh, still free, if he's supposed to be in the uh, in the prison. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how Grant was born or how he came into contact with his father or the whole why he became Deathstroke or any of that. Uh, it would be nice to, at some point, uh, see that explained on one of the TV shows, maybe have a Slade Wilson appearance on Arrow again or something like that. Uh, just even if it's just in a flashback kind of form to, to get some kind of uh, idea of what's going on there. And then you have Connor Hawk, who they've made into Diggle's son, and that's a character yet to be born yet. So uh, if this is an alternate timeline, and if the grave thing happens in this alternate timeline for Arrow. Um, if it also happens in this alternate timeline, I guess I'm saying, we can probably eliminate John from being in the grave. 
I, I mean, I guess John Diggle could could have been conceived um, by Diggle and Diggle still be in the grave if he's like 29 or 30, but he just didn't seem that old to me. And And that brings me to this, though. Donald had questioned if the entire crew of the Legends series was dead since Rip had told him that he would be they would be returned to 2016 and we hadn't seen them in any of the other shows again. And I didn't recall that Rip had said that, but that was definitely confirmed in this episode and it was even um, brought up in the show that they might not survive. But if they do survive and if they are successful at eliminating Savage... My question is, at what point in 2016 will they be returned? And here's why I ask that. Because if they are returned just after the point from where they are pulled, then just like this Star City 2046 is in an alternate timeline, anything that happens past the point where they left or rather past the point where they return, I guess I should say, from their departure, is in as much flux as this version of the future. So let's say that you know they were plucked on, what was the premiere date? January 19th or whatever of 2016. If they are returned on January 20th of 2016, then everything else we've seen on all of the other shows would be in flux timelines that we're witnessing happening, or at least that would be my logic of it. You can't have it just be for 2046. You have to have it be for anything to the point where they return to, uh, because they can affect that. They can. That's why it is in flux because either their lack of being there or their being there, uh, places their own personal alter their own personal timelines in flux. So could we be witnessing on Flash and on Arrow and maybe even Supergirl, since the Flash is going to appear in a Supergirl episode, could we be seeing some kind of alternate timeline being played out in front of us that will be fixed because Legends will end and then everything will come back and, and I mean, I would hate that kind of reset button. Um, but is it possible? Could everything be in flux? I mean, think about things like, oh gosh, I don't know. Uh, since we saw the flashback being in the future the whole time of where they departed, um, if they came back before that, then the grave could be, uh, something in flux. The final closing of the breaches on flash could be in flux, even probably Astra's death could be in flux. Um, the fact that Merlin lost his hand or that Thea got saved from the bloodlust, that all could be in flux. Now, I'm not going to say that they're going to go there. Um, I, like I said, I would hate that. That would be just as bad a reset button as the Lazarus pit. But I have to. I had to ask that question. Now, if they get returned at some point past all of this stuff with the grave and all of that happening, then of course that stuff will be fixed. And I would imagine that that's the way they're going to play it. Um, but uh, if, if they're re returned right back at the point to where they departed, um, then everything we're seeing is in flux. And again, I'm overthinking it all, but uh, I do like to overthink. Um, so I might as well share the 
babbling with you all so that I can kind of purge my system of it. Like I said, I don't think that they're actually going to do that. Um, but I wonder if they've kind of linking all of these things together so that somebody will just at least ask the question. So there you go. Raised my hand. Um, on to the other characters. And I mean, come on. You, you you didn't think the writers of the show wouldn't have to honor the CW mandate at some point, just like all of the other shows have had to, right? And looky what we have here. Nice little love triangle. Kendra's getting some attention from Jax and, and Ray. But, and I hate to say this, it almost feels like this was the best use of Ray since the beginning of this series. And not because I wanted him to Ken, and Kendra to be together, but because the writers used this singular episode to fulfill the mandate and then completely wrap it up. Um, kind of like if you just did a quick sketch and then held it up to the class and then you lit it on fire. So I love that um, because I don't want love triangles in yet another story, as you will hear uh, when I talk about Supergirl. Plus, the fact that they did dispatch it made you appreciate it for really what it was, which was adding some humor to the episode. And you had a little bit of bonding for Stein and Jax. Um, and uh, again, uh, and this is one one of my constant critiques of this show it gave the four of them something to do because it always, again, it always seems like there's not enough main storyline for all of the characters to be involved. So they have to get divided up into little subgroups. Um, they get divided up into groups just like they get the, the plots get divided up. And most of those subplots are, are usually pretty meaningless to me. The one sidebar, I guess, that didn't seem quite so meaningless this week was the Roy and Snart story of this week. I, I love the idea that perhaps the group as a whole is getting stronger and and working together better, but that some of the original alliances within the group were going the opposite way. I mean, you have to think about it. Of course, Rory would love that hellhole that they found themselves in. He loves fire. Everything's on fire. Um, I'm not so certain about like Snart's motives to try and get Rory out of there. Um, the big scores was actually kind of the way that Snart talked Rory into doing this in the first place. And now he wants what fame, I guess. I mean, the fact that he helped Barry out by, by tipping him off about the trickster back in the flash Christmas episode, I guess that was kind of a shift in his moral compass, but now he seems like he's just all about the overall mission instead of his own personal sidebar with it. But at any rate, there's probably going to be some lingering tension there, um, despite the fact that they both uh, did end up helping out in the end. Speaking of tension, how about that tension between Rip and Sarah? Um, both of them making their points about whether any timeline should be saved or, or just the ones that they particularly care about. And I loved how that ended up coming down. Um, there was a lot of standoff about that in this episode between them. And I enjoyed the debate and the resolution. My question is this. Sarah seems to talk more to Rip about stuff than anyone else in, in the group. And I just wonder if the writers are trying to work uh, up a potential love story. Here. And I hope that, again, <laughs> I hope that's not the case. I mean, after all, 
one one of the perks for Rip to get Savage isn't just saving his world, but it's about saving his family. So if you had him fall in love before he achieved the goal, that would seem pretty disastrous to me. I I do have faith, really, that the writers would fight that kind of note if it came down from the CW execs. But I got to say, I could honestly definitely see that note being written by the CW execs and handed down to the showrunners, given all of the love mandate we've seen in all of the other CW shows. And as much as this show does split everyone up and and have their over-dramatic little moments sometimes, um, I do love it when the entire team is together and they just kick everyone's butts all over the place. And I realize that they probably don't want to do that too much because they don't want it to get old before it's re- like really needed. But I, I like the end. Um, and you couple that with an old Green Arrow and a new Green Arrow and a second generation Deathstroke, and it really makes for a heck of a lot of fun uh, in that final sequence. So I guess the final verdict for this one really hinges on the fact that I actually didn't know that Stephen Amell was going to be in this episode. Uh, and just his appearance and his performance uh, bumped this up an extra point five for me. Um, I also liked that there was no Savage, no Time Masters. Um, I liked all the little call-outs to the other characters like Felicity, the whole uh, smoke uh, building uh, rather than Palmer Tech. Uh, loved all of that. And... I like that they fulfilled their obligation, you know, their their CW mandate obligation without actually turning it into a soap opera. That's the most successful that any of these shows have been at that so far. So I'm going to go 8.7 this week, despite my little nitpicks. You know, I always throw in little Matt's tomatoes, those things that don't really matter. If you don't know what I mean by Matt's tomatoes, I question how tomatoes got on the island when I was podcasting about Lost. Um, does it really matter? No. But it's just one of those things that I had to point out. Um, so that's what a Matt's tomato is. But it, despite all of my Matt's tomatoes that I may have had and, and uh, little, just little nitpicks, I guess, I'm still going to go 8.7 this week. A very strong episode. And with that, let's get to the Supergirl discussion. Supergirl Season 1, Episode 15, entitled Solitude. Again, written by Anna Muskie goldwyn and James DeVille and directed by Dermot Downs. Lots of things resolved, or at least seemingly so, in this episode. And yet, at the same time, lots of muck stirred up too. So I want to get some of the muck out of the way first so that I can talk more about the things that I really liked about this episode after that. I had really felt like they were dialing down a lot of this love crap the last couple of episodes. But I guess, given that it is network TV and that... Seemingly any network that starts with a C has to have some kind of love triangle mandate. We had to have everything kind of on the quote-unquote home front get stirred up again just because of that. And I will say this. I actually felt bad for Lucy Lane this time around. See, you think about what she's done. She's actually sacrificed a whole lot to be with James. And yes, she can be somewhat bitchy about superheroes getting more attention from James than she gets from James. But I I would think that would be kind of natural when someone misses a date. 
that they had insisted upon having because of that problem. And, of course, it is extremely convenient, is it not, that Kara wouldn't give James permission to tell Lucy who she is until it was already too late. And after she had really kind of thrown a, a, a wrench in it for James and Lucy with the whole camera story, everything just played out just like a soap opera. And, and now Lucy has seemingly, and again... I say seemingly, left James and and more or less told him that he and Kara are in love of, with each other, even if they don't realize it. And man, boy, that's a trope. I mean, it's crap. I, I, I feel like I was watching an episode of Days of Our Lives there for a little while. But back to as far as Lucy goes, I mean, you have to ask, will she now leave National City? Will she stay at Catco if for no other reason so that the writers can write more Days of Our Lives? Instead of an actual superhero show, uh, stay tuned and find out, right? It's kind of also extremely convenient for James and Kara that Wynn seemingly is going to be preoccupied with uh, Shiboan for a while. So if you are one of those people who is a James Kara shipper, I guess you might be jumping up and down with excitement at all of these turns of events. Because this is kind of the first real chance that the two have gotten to try and figure all of this out. As for me, I really could care less, but I hope it either happens quickly so that we can get past all of it quickly, or that it doesn't happen at all because both of them finally realize that it's probably not the right thing. The one thing I don't want is a Ross and Rachel from Friends story streaming across seasons of this show for the duration of the series. So let, let's just go ahead and decide something, what we're going to do with these two characters, and then play it out to a good resolution one way or the other, please, as quickly as possible. And the only good thing that I can think of as a result of the James and Kara working together so closely this week was the trip to the Fortress of Solitude. So I'm starting to swing back to the good stuff. I think I got my main rant out of the way. Um, I, I loved the key being made of like the tonnage of the Dwarf Star. That was great. And you had all kinds of nods in the Fortress of Solitude itself to, I think, the DC movies and the DC comics. Uh, of course, we have seen the, the Keelix assistants before, so that was no surprise to see one at the Fortress. But the Easter egg that everyone on Twitter seemed to be all excited about was that Legion of, of Superheroes flight ring. And I have to admit that I've never really read or seen anything on the Legion of Superheroes before. But given the level of, of excitement that I saw fans uh, tweeting about, I guess maybe I should probably do some investigation into it and I'll get back to you on that when I do the fortress itself. I'm not really sure that it impressed me all that much to be perfectly honest. It's not that I was disappointed in it either. It's just that really my most impressionable vision of the fortress of solitude came when I was a kid back in the seventies. And I, I saw the fortress in the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Um, that's the image that I always see when I think Fortress of Solitude in my mind's eye. And I, I suppose there were hints of that in the design, but that 
childhood image is just so ingrained in me that really no other interpretation or depiction of that feels right to me, I guess. And of course, the whole thing that brings Kara and James to the Fortress of Solitude in the first place is to find out about Indigo, right? A recurring villain. And that's where we also get nods to actually the DC TV universe, priorly anyway, and the comics. Like having Laura Vandervoort on the show as Indigo, that was great because she played Supergirl herself in a Smallville series. So that's two actresses now that have played Supergirl before. The actress who plays uh, Supergirl's mom in this series was in the Supergirl movie. And we have Laura Vandervoort, who played uh, Supergirl in a Smallville series, now playing a, a villain. Um, plus, they threw in that Brainiac 8 stuff in there, which I think was a, a nod to the comics, and a little bit to Smallville as well. And I'm really glad that they gave Laura a, a recurring role. They didn't just completely eliminate her with that virus. Um, I actually think that her acting has gotten a lot better since her Smallville days. And, of course, she still looks great doing close-ups for stunt sequences. Um, she always did look pretty good doing that, even when she was playing Supergirl back in Smallville. And she did a good job of making Indigo formidable and a, a little crazy. And there was just enough cheese to make it a really kind of a superhero world villain-esque kind of uh, character. And... I guess finding out about her affair with Nan kind of was a surprise to me. I, I'm not sure if that's from the comics or not. But I, I can definitely say that the whole reveal about Astra, that really wasn't a big surprise to me. I had suspected before, I think I even stated it on this podcast before, that I thought um, Astra might actually want to help the planet and the human population uh, she's just trying to save it from its uh, the ways that it's destroying the planet. And I have no idea whether that's in the comics or not, because I, like I said, I'm not much of a comic book reader, but I really like that aspect, uh, mainly because I can say I was right about it. <laughs> uh, still not sure what Myriad is. I mean, it, yeah, I've kind of looked up Myriad uh, in the wikis, and there is a DC character, I think, named Myriad, but I'm not sure how that could really be a threat to the entire world. So uh, I'm hoping that it's something bigger than what that is. Um, they're certainly dangling it uh, in front of us a lot. So it's got to be season finale oriented. I mean, duh. I'm not saying anything you don't already know, right? But as far as Indigo's look, uh, that whole cubic effect when she kind of transported herself in and out of devices, it, that seemed a little fake, uh, it seemed that, like the VFX weren't quite there. But I do also recall that kind of cubic effect being associated with Brainiac uh, in Smallville. So I'm going to let that slide because maybe that's what it's supposed to look like. Um, I love the uh, the Stretch Armstrong stuff. Oh, m maybe most of you are too young to even remember those dolls. I don't know. Do they still make Stretch Armstrong dolls? It's not like I've been in a Toys R Us lately. Um did they were these dolls made of some of this kind of like weird putty rubber that you could pull apart and then it would slowly retract. And I used to pull the arms apart on my Stretch Armstrong doll 
all the time. As far as my little muscles could get it to pull out, or as far as my arms reached out, and then watch them slowly sink back in. So when Indigo was reaching with both keys for the keyholes, uh, I loved that moment. I thought it was I thought it was cool. Her fighting sequences were great too. Now, while I like Wind kind of having a hero moment of his own. I have to say that the idea of him being the only one who the DEO can find that could write malware strong enough to take Indigo down, that seemed a little bit of a stretch to me. I know that they, the Alex came in there because he was supposedly an authority on some kind of code, and um, but you know, having him decode or understand or learn alien computer programming code in the time to that it takes to watch a Doctor Who episode, like he joked. That seemed a little bit uh, of a stretch. But for the sake of giving Wynn an actual, like, real, tangible contribution to the show for once, I'm definitely going to let it slide. And even though he did stop Indigo for now, we do have Nan, of course, retrieving the pieces of her. So you know she's going to be back. And that I like. I like uh, the idea of Laura Vandervoort coming back for some more episodes. And again, with Wynn, I already mentioned the, the kiss with Shibo. And then, of course, it's in Wynn's nature, probably, to be supportive of someone who's ashamed of their father. But how long is this little fling going to last? If you know who Shiboan is in the comics... Um, then you probably suspect that this can't end very well for Wynn and maybe even make things worse as far as him and Kara go. But as for uh, Shiboan herself, we actually saw uh, quite a few chinks in the armor this week, as compared to last week at least, because like she didn't know that she was supposed to open things before giving them to Kat. Um, she didn't know who her Kat's investment banker was and, and, and things like that. Um, and you could say that I guess everything after the flash drive is introduced could be related to Chiboan's feelings about her father, but, um, still the opening letter thing shows that she, she you know, she doesn't know everything about Kat, so maybe she won't stay in Kat's good graces for very long. Kat was already starting to depend on Kara a little more towards the end of the episode, so have to see how that plays out. I loved that Kat, as for herself, actually prioritized her son after everything that had happened. That was a nice touch under the fact that you had Kat, again, being smart and tough and and even compassionate this week. So that's really all I have to say about Kat. That feels weird because I love talking about Kat. I think you all know that I I just adore uh, Kat Grant when she's written correctly. Um, but she was pretty much in the background this week. And I guess that brings me to Kara herself. That whole standoff with the DEO, it was supposed to be a lesson that we needed to see her learn is the best thing I can come up with. And of course, it, I guess it was mostly just to serve as the setup for Alex's confession. But uh, in the course of all of that, just individual shots that I loved with Kara was uh, her chasing the missile. The way her hands dug into the hull as she tried to get to the control panel, that was super awesome. Um, A classic superhero problem, you know, a a missile flying through the air. Save the city from the missile. That's pretty tropic, but uh, 
they tried to throw in a couple of wrinkles, and I guess it worked out all right. Her second fight with Indigo was just okay to me. Sometimes the way superheroes fight, you know, sometimes they're flinging each other clear across, halfway across the country, and sometimes um, they barely even seem to affect each other with their punches. I don't get that. Um, But I did like their first face-off when Indigo actually hit her and it uh, knocked her out the window and uh, she had to start flying because, you know, in order to keep from falling... But my question is this. Here's a Matt's tomato for you. Um, she's been attacked a few times in that apartment now. I mean, don't you think the neighbors would start complaining? Uh, what does the landlord think of the fact that windows keep getting broke out <laughs> at that apartment? Uh, uh, how do you explain all of that? Well, see, I'm a superhero, and no, you can't do that. So how do you explain the fact that there's a much larger than should be hole in your wall because somebody broke through it. Anyway, I guess the last thing I'll talk about really is the confession that Alex makes and Alex herself. First though, actually I do love that when her and Hank are sparring, he doesn't hold back from using his alien powers because that's what Alex has to face all the time. So there's no reason to go easy on her. Although I will say this, given the way that Hank seemed to feel about the whole sparring thing, it might suggest that he was actually also just trying to end the session quickly, too, because she was banging around on him pretty good out of her own frustration. The whole sister stuff with with Kara and Alex is good. It usually is on this show. And I think I've mentioned before that I've not really experienced a superhero show or or book or anything like that with this kind of real aspect to it. So this is a lot of fun for me just to see a couple of sisters, you know, some, whether it be just sitting on the couch and watching game of Thrones or, or bringing donuts to each other. Um, I love all that stuff. I, I think that that's great. And I love really love the fact that they didn't make this whole secret thing last too long, nor did they, turn it into an aspect where, you know, there was a big fallout, like I predicted there probably would be. Uh, I said that they'll string this out, they'll have it happen at the most inopportune time that the secret comes out, uh, and then they will make that be a big problem for the, for the big baddie at the end. They didn't go that route. That was the predictable route, and they didn't go that route. Instead, they made me love Alex even more because... She had the courage not only to admit the truth, but also the courage to ask Cara to stay. Um, That was just, you know, I'm a sap, right? You all know this. I say it constantly. I am a sap. And that kind of scene always gets to me. And, And they did, I guess, just for one slight moment they made it seem like Kara was going to be really mad and walk out the door that's the typical over drama that you got to have in a network show or maybe even a superhero show I don't know but then when she stopped and she went over and she hugged Alex I just lost it I admitted I was lost it and then it got even worse when Hank uh started to walk out because he wanted them to have their moment and and Kara reached out to Hank and yeah, so I was just like, oh, we're all one big happy family again. I, I got the feels. Um, and, and to me, really, 
that may have defined Kara as a true superhero, to be perfectly honest, because forgiveness is a big key to that for me. Um, so I, I just, I loved um, that Kara, you know, she was mad at Hank, but Hank wasn't someone that she knew, but Alex is family. And the fact that Alex said it right, I think is, is what made the difference for Kara. Uh, the fact that she is family and that Alex made it a point to set it right. And, and basically said, I can't lose you. And they could have gone the whole other route. They could have had Kara walk out. They could have had Kara and Alex be in separate rooms for, you know, four episodes. But instead, they wrapped it up. And I really love that. Well, I say they really wrapped it up. There may still be some lingering doubt or harbored feelings that might resurface later. Um, you know, if they just need a little bit of extra overdrama at, at some point. Um, but... For the most part, I, th I think this is pretty much wrapped up, and it was done just beautifully. And I guess that brings me to my rating. Didn't like the lovey-dovey stuff at all, as you know. Hate, hate days of our lives in my superhero show. Pretty much liked everything else, though. I loved the Alex Cara stuff, in case you couldn't tell. So I'm going to go an 8.3 this week. Because we get a great new recurring villain. You have Alex and Kara getting all of that out in the open. That greatly overshadows any of the meh or the dislikes that I have for this episode. Feedback. Your thoughts on this week's episodes. Just one little piece of feedback that I have for this week. And it comes from uh, Twitter. At Tucker Ross Khan tweeted this to me. Any guesses yet for who is in the grave on Arrow? My guess is Mama Smoke. All right. Uh, that's a good guess. Uh, all I can really definitively say is who I think it is not at this point. But I, I think it definitely makes sense that Felicity would be so upset that she would tell Oliver that he had to kill whoever put the person in the grave. If it were Donna Smoke. And even more so, since we're at a point now where Oliver and Felicity are more or less estranged. Uh, if she's still asking that of Oliver at that point in the future, then um, that seems to be the most logical choice. I would hate that, though. I love Charlotte Ross. Charlotte Ross really makes uh, that character for me. They can't kill Mama Smoke. Um, but I guess they can, they can do whatever they want. Right. So good guess at Tucker Ross Khan on Twitter. Thanks for tweeting to me and folks. That's it. I'm still planning on an ep with, uh, our buddies, Donald and Camille in the near future. So we can talk about things like this since we won't have uh, flash or arrow, uh, for a few more weeks, three more weeks, I guess. Uh, we won't even have Supergirl next week. So I got to find some, some good content for you guys, uh, rather than just talking about legends of tomorrow, uh, at some point next week, I'm going to try and get Donald and Camille in a room with me to talk about, uh, all things in terms of the superhero universe, uh, when we get a chance and, uh, we will join you again sometime next week at very least looking at the, this week's more or less legends of tomorrow entitled Maroon 
episode seven. So see you then. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you have any feedback, you can tweet me just like at Tucker Ross Khan did on Twitter. Send that tweet to at Save This City Pod, or you can send an email to Save This City Podcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail, 314 669 1840. Feel free to send me any thoughts, predictions, um, criticisms of my takes disagreements with me, agreements with me, whatever you feel like. I'd love to hear from you. You can find all of the contact information and podcatcher links and all back episodes at savethiscitypodcast.wordpress.com. This is Matt. Thanks for listening. Take care. Find all back episodes and all contact links at savethiscitypodcast.wordpress.com. If you have feedback, you can leave a voicemail by calling 314-669-1840 or send email to savethiscitypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at savethiscitypod. Please leave the podcast a written review on whatever app that you use.